Live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 289 is recorded live July 7th, 2016. Welcome back to the kind of wet southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I am drying out as we speak. And I didn't say who I was, as, as if somebody who's been listening to the show didn't know, but I'm Darren Jilson. And there has been some diving going on. Not by me, unfortunately. I, I'm, I'm almost to, I got one more week, I think, of graduation parties, and I am free of this at least for another year. So we did have a little rain today. A little moisture came down. Yep, I got a little note from Mirabeth saying, am I going to go diving tonight? I <laughs> said, yeah, she said, it's rainy, but it ain't lightning. I said, we'll be there. Yeah. And we will. I always love diving in the rain. The only downside, because you guys were in the river tonight, weren't you? Yeah. The only downside is that with the overcast, it can be a little dark. True. I have had some of my best dives in the rain, and it is really awesome to be in there. Stand up in about six foot of water with your mask just out and watch the raindrops yeah. hit and bounce back up in your eye or, or the splash. Yeah, it's it, just cool. It, it, and the I see, best visibility in the rain. Yes. Seeing the rain from underwater is, is, is to me is always a treat. I, I like diving in the rain. And if you're an outdoor person, there's not a lot of things you really do regularly outdoors. I mean, other than that, I think the most awesome thing I've seen underwater like that is watching ice form over me. Yes. That is freaking awesome. I, I haven't had that privilege, but at this time of year, I don't want to think about ice on the water. Well, that's true. And like we were saying tonight is, some guys are saying, I don't think I need a hood. I'm not going to wear this. Oh. Everybody wants your gloves on because you grub them, but uh, yeah. it was very toasty out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkably warm. In fact, I, I think I would have to break out my wetsuit. But see, my wetsuit might actually keep me warm this time of year. Your wetsuit would keep you warm, or as warm as you'd want to be, yes. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. I want to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have a few who have decided to join us at our late starting time. We seem to be starting between 10 and 11 due to diving. We have uh, Mark from California and Vanessa, also from California, Vanessa the Mermaid. So thank you for coming into the chat room. The chat room, if you want to join us, record live-ish on Thursdays. Go to TalkShoe.com. We are show 73759. Also go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, and you can find links over to TalkShoe. Thanks to Jim Billings, who's been maintaining the website. He's added posts for the last two weeks, which is, that's like a record streak for us now, two weeks in a row. First article is a scuba diver films what he fears are his last moments alive. 
after getting lost at sea. This one's out of the UK. A stranded diver filmed what he believed his last moments alive when he was lost. Jacob Child spent more than six hours drifting in the middle of the ocean after losing his way in a diving expedition in Queen Le- Queensland, Australia. The footage Jacob admits was quickly running out for him due to the precarious predicament. At one point, he comes to the conclusion, wrap up old Jakey, which is, is that like a British term or does that just mean, there's he is talking about it, his name being Jake? I don't know. Since he's Jacob, I guess that's close enough. The 30-year-old disappeared during a diving expedition off the southeast coast. When he surfaced a scuba dive, there's no safety rope for him to hold on to, and he suddenly found himself drifting several kilometers from the boat. Meanwhile, experienced divers lost at sea. Massive air and search was launched for him. He revealed he could see and hear the helicopters around him, but they were unable to spot him as night rolled in. He began to fear the worst. The sun began to set, and the chances for being spotted were decreasing. He decided to film what he thought was final moments on Earth. He told his camera, so that's it. The sun goes down. They won't do nothing. That's a wrap for old Jakey. Plane spotted him floating in the water, and police were able to rescue him. He told Australia's ABCA surfaced alongside the boat, and there was no tagline out the back of the boat for me to grab onto. It's as long time to spend by yourself. Apparently there are a lot of boats out there, but I didn't see any of those. All I seen and heard was a trawler, which I tried swimming towards. The officer in charge of the search operation, Sergeant Rob uh, Jorna said Jacob's experience with the sea helped aircraft locate him. Jacob added he was looking forward to a cup of tea and he couldn't wait to get back out into the water. Now, was it, it's not clear. Was this his boat he was diving off of? It, it didn't sound like it, but then again, it must have been a hell of a current. Well, wasn't there somebody? Because, I, I mean, I've we've been in similar situations where you have a current, and we frequently, if there's, with the exception of no current, we almost always have a tagline out the boat, back of the boat. And the reason people would say, well, why won't you have a tagline out when there's no current? And sometimes it's just too many lines. They kind of all tend to bunch up there at the boat. So if there's absolutely no current, you don't add extra junk into the water. But if there was somebody on the boat, they didn't see him surface. So it sounds like he just came up a little behind. You know, obviously there's not enough information for us. And it doesn't say anything about if he was on somebody else's boat, they looked for him. Yeah. yeah At what point that did... does mean, though, to me, if I'm out in the ocean, one, I have a bag, mm-hmm. it shows up in the air with a reflector on it, Yeah. big key. And if I were doing something I like, I, like when we dive, especially towards evening, I have a strobe. Yeah, it says they, uh, he can considers himself an experienced diver, and the sergeant says Jacob's experience with the sea helped aircraft locate him. That so I, that means, though. It, it, it does, I don't know. If he had a safety sausage and had that out, that could have been something you could contribute. Yeah. Um, but they didn't say. It seems like you'd add that stuff. This is just a really short article. Yes, it is. If you know, drop us a line at the show at Scoob Obsessed. Let us know how he was discovered, what he did to contribute to it, anything like that, we'd, we'd love to find out. It's, it's always better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than make them yourself. Absolutely. That's like tonight, even after I dive, as we're sitting there eating, we always go around and say, okay, what did you learn to do or not to do? You know, is it, I mean, did you have a re- reinforcement or did you have a, aha, I don't want to do this again type moment? Yeah, yeah. always something to be learned. Always, always learn, always improve. Oh, absolutely. And they say if you don't like seafood, this next item may change your mind. 
and they're referring to the lionfish, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. Uh, there's an effort out there to get people to eat them. Uh, in Cuba, they're, they're doing the same thing. They said uh, fish are hanging around the coral reefs, living large and feasting on smaller species and scaring off potential predators with its spines. Uh, defying the invasion and fear of those intimidating spines, Cubans have begun serving up lionfish for dinner. They said the tasty meal and act of ecosystem conservatism is all at the same time. Uh, marine biologists for the National Aquarium in Havana said lionfish were first recorded in Cuba in 2007. After being introduced to Caribbean waters accidentally within two years, the fish surrounded the island. said even sharks won't go near them, giving them free reign to feed and spread. Cuba now holds an annual fishing tournament for the species, and they said that it's practically been decimated. Professional diver, oh my gosh, Ern Creek Valdez backed it up saying, now you only see the little ones. Uh, he's a 55-year-old scuba pro. Restaurants are trying to create buzz around the new protein-rich fish. Even if some customers are reluctant at first, besides scaring off predators of spines, lionfish is also known for stinging bathers and fishermen to come in contact with them. Symptoms include pain, swelling, and allergic reaction. You're trying to introduce them on the menu, but since it's a fish everyone knows is venomous, it has been difficult. But it sounds like the, it's working because it, you're just they're not even they're not able to get the big ones anymore. And if they're only finding the little ones, I mean they must really be doing a good job. Yeah, it. I keep hearing that it tastes great. Well, I keep I, at the end of that it said Cuban biologists are also studying the lionfish venom as a possible cancer fighting agent. That sounds interesting. Yeah, they, they've they've been looking at doing it with uh, all sorts of venomous species, including the jellyfish. And then an additional follow-up to the lionfish is Central Florida Whole Foods is now going to host lionfish cooking classes. Back in May, the Whole Foods location started selling the fish for consumption. Now they're planning on teaching customers how to cook them. The Altamont Springs in Orlando and Winter Park store locations will host lionfish filleting and live cooking demos with samples and made-to-order lionfish tacos from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturday, July 16th. The Orlando location will feature local scuba diver spear fisherman uh, Vincent Luis, uh, who catches lionfish to explain his fishing techniques. Whole lionfish will be on sale for July from July 15th to 19th for $7.99 a pound. To me, now, that, that's just asking a diver. You mm-hmm. can make some money, guys. Yeah. Well, if you're a store, you need to have a, a – if you get people getting to eat them, you need to make sure you have a supply to keep them for, for people to consume. Yeah. Because if they, if they plan on a meal and they can't pop in and get it fresh, you know, the, the day before or the day of, then uh, eventually it's not going to be something they're going to cook. So you've got that ecosystem. you got to get that supply and demand balance. Uh, and, and they're probably uh, – haven't quite seen it yet. But it also sounds like they're they're trying to teach people how to fillet them. So are they still going to continue to remove the spines like they talked about in the, the article a few weeks ago? Or is it now going to be a case of uh, they're trying to convince people who can do it themselves, which makes it more profitable for them because you're not tying up a butcher. Yeah. Again, I mean, I we, know, again anybody out there who yeah. knows something about this, especially from Florida, let us know because I'd like inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, is this just a bunch of uh, press PR, or is it actually 
happening. And another follow-up article, we have the another forest under the lake. This one is in uh, Fallen Leaf Lake Tahoe. So high up in the Sierra, one mile south of Lake Tahoe lies California, one of California's alpine lakes. At 6,300 feet in elevation, Fallen Lake was carved out of granite by two massive glaciers that traveled northward down Glen Alpen Valley, leave behind a lake that is now three miles long, just under a mile wide, and 410 feet deep at the deepest point. And they go in the article and talk about some things, but they're saying now that they believe the trees are where they are at the bottom of the lake, not because the lake had dried up and drowned and and, uh, the trees had grown there at some point in time, but that they are results of landslides because they're finding instances where two trees next to each other standing up on the bottom are thousand years different in age. So they're saying the only way that could happen is that the first one had slid down there in an ancient landslide and then had been covered, and then the next one, a thousand years later, slid down and ended up resting next to the first one. Because they said if the lake had dried and then you had this tree which takes a hundred years to grow, the orig- the other tree would have rotted away by being, you know, out of the elements. Out in the- I like the little item in here that talked about some researchers studied the trees, came to the conclusion that the submerged ancient mature conifer trees grew during a medieval mega drought that lasted 150, 200 years. And once the drought was over, the lake level rose 150 to 200 feet. Mm-hmm. Now, global warming, wonderful. Does it happen? Absolutely. It ain't our fault. Yeah. yeah. And some, sometime we're going to go on that. I want to get some experts on and talk about the global warming. Because I, I do think that we can contribute. You know, it's like we're accelerating, but I don't think we're accelerating anywhere near to the magnitude that uh, science, some scientists are saying. Uh, there's an incentive right now. It's hard to believe people who are being paid to study it. So uh, I think that there's a little bias that's being built into the system. Uh, but this is an, an instance where uh, we've got some things going on. Right. I, I like that submarine. Overpopulation more than it is. Oh yeah, yeah. They would they would do much better instead of focusing on CO two and start talking about just pollution in general. Yeah, uh, I like the submarine, just like you said. That'd be cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice one, and that's what's enabling them to get down. Because when you start looking at objects that are four hundred feet, that's just even if you can do that with a tech dive, that you don't have enough time to really accomplish much. I like the part though where they said the ancient cycle. A bigger drought seemed to occur every 650 to 1150 years. Mm-hmm. The last one was 750 years ago. Well, and that makes sense. What you do is you have these, these uh, you have ocean currents, which can move and change, and you also have air currents that are moving over the, over the planet. And as they adjust and turn, then you're going to end up with cycles. So one place of the, on the globe is going to be having a drought, and the other one's going to be having a monsoon. Uh, and it depends on how long it stays in that cycle. So you can have deserts that become forests and vice versa. Uh, in this case, I, I think to kind of go along with what I was saying earlier on it is that, you know, if they had one of these mega droughts, what it did is you had trees growing on what was lake banks. And then when the rains came back, you probably lost a little bit of soil. And they're talking about that they're seeing there's four seismic plates 
there's a lot for these researchers to mull over after this project's done. Right, right. The pictures are quite interesting where they're talking about the difference between the trees with root balls and those that don't, mm-hmm. and the ones that were caused by landslides versus the ones that were growing. That's yes. quite interesting. It looks like beautiful water. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice long article. This one's from CaliforniaDiver.com, so a uh, nice write-up. Right, it's a, the, this one here, I like the, the coloration on it. But to one or two occupants, a depth of 400 feet. Pretty yeah. nice. Yeah. And then this was one that I that you uh, turned me on to. We have a British man who plans on swimming across the ocean. Uh, 36-year-old Ben Hooper has explained he plans to become the first man to swim across the Atlantic. The father of one will set up from... Uh, Senegalese capital of Dakar on November 1st, heading for the Brazilian city of Natal. Although he won't be attempting the complete 2,000-mile stretch without stopping, the effort involves in this four-month swim is monumental. He will spend 12 hours a day in the water, split into two shifts of six hours, fighting currents of seven knots and waves that reach up to 30 feet in height. His diet will have to be heavily monitored to offset the 12,000 calories per day that his body will burn through. In between the legs of his swim across the Atlantic, he will sleep on board a support vessel named by a team of fifth, manned by a team of fifteen medics. Do you need fifteen medics? I can't believe that after that much immersion, he's not going to have some kind of trauma to the skin because it'll be so moist. You know what I'm saying? Because you stay in the water a long time, you get right issues with the skin. Yeah, so twelve hours. I, I think it's smart. He's not trying. I mean, it's. I don't think it's possible you could do it in one stretch. No, I don't. But, uh, you know, the 12 hours a day. So what, I, what I'm guessing they're doing is that they're going to have some sort of chase vessel. Uh, what, do they say whether this vessel is going to be – because I've seen some people do the, the swimming, and they're, they're like swimming in a cage being dragged behind a boat. And sometimes that will block the waves and wind. That almost creates like a draft that you are slipstreaming in. Yeah, protect you from sharks, though. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the reason I had that. Yeah, because it used to be, it seemed like when I was uh, uh, younger, like, you know, school aged, there was a while there where there were three or four people who were doing the, you know, they'd swim from between islands or they'd cross the channel, you know, England to France. It seemed like there's a, mo- a time there where that was becoming popular. Didn't we have somebody swim from Chicago to Michigan City? I don't remember that, but it's, I'm betting somebody's had, tried it at some point. I think we've had him do the canoe, the kayak canoe, mm-hmm. the sail, the stand up board. Oh yeah, paddle board. Or the or the, the not the paddle board. What's probably the wind sailor or no paddle board? Paddle board. Somebody paddle. did a paddle board. Gotta have a really nice day for that though. Yeah. So he's got a grueling training program. He's swimming a uh, hundred thousand links in his local pool over the past twelve months. His mo- he says, my motto is dream, live, achieve. Nothing is impossible no matter what hurdles are in your way. Let let him tell us that after he's done. Yeah. yeah. 100,000 links to the pool is going to be some good training, but I think you almost need to go through like a simulated week because he's talking about four months. So if you can do 12 hours of swimming for seven days, you know, even if it is in a pool, that would kind of give you an indication of the best case that you're going to run out of. That sounds so painful. It does. 
Is, is he, does it say he's doing it for a fundraiser or is it just to win the world record? Well, I don't think it's just because of the record, but I mean, that's, that's one I know. So uh, some uh, high-profile supporter, Sir Ranulf Flynn, says, This swim is, in my view, one of the last great bastions of exploration to remain unconquered. You know, there's, there's, I mean, good for him. I'm not going to take anything away from him, but does this really need to be conquered? Hey, I mean, anything for a record. Yeah. That, that's what you go for, right? What hasn't been said like that, I can do it. Well, this is one of those, if you do it, you know it's not going to be broken for a while. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, just the logistics, the cost, the effort. Of course, I could lose, I could use to lose, uh, 12,000 calories per day. That'd be, that'd be a good exercise. That's program. an extreme way to do it, you know, get on a diet. Yeah. Well, you, if, for him to maintain that, he's got to be consuming that same amount. I, I'm wondering what kind of food they're giving him, balanced, whatever, to compensate for the calorie yeah. that he's going to be using. I'm picturing beans and bran. Beans? Well, don't you need something that you can just pass easily while you're swimming? Just I mean, drink sugar drinks. <laughs> I have not a clue. Now, that's a good question. Yeah. Anybody out there has any clue? What well, kind of you're 12 hours in the water. What kind of diet do you have for that? Yeah. That you can sustain for, for months? Wow. I mean, you could do protein shakes. You know, Probably would be some of them. Has anybody done anything like this? I'm trying to look for an equivalent. If you tried to run across America, how many calories does that use? But the thing and, about running is, you know, you can always like, you know, you know, uh, even Forrest Gump, you know, probably stopped in a McDonald's and had a little break. Or, but I'm telling you, if you were going to run 12 hours a day or even walk 12 hours a day. Well, I mean, there have been people who have died for less effort. Because yeah. what's, a, what's a marathon? Well, you do a triathlon. Yeah, those are usually oh, done in much Ironman. less than 12 hours. Oh, the Ironman. Those guys are, and ladies, they are something else. Yeah. So this is, I would have to say, it's like doing two or three of those a day. It'd be really interesting if he does it or starts out and really hears the results of it. Yeah. That would be something else. We'll have to make sure we try to trend this one. Sometimes I wonder how. Maybe that's another app I need to write. Is just something that tracks some of this stuff. Well, I mean, just having the boat service you or boats, it's going to be expensive. So I, the funding of this, I, I just wonder about the funding also. He's got to have, well, it, it sounds like he's got supporters. So he's got somebody helping him underwrite it. But a boat capable of going across the Atlantic being staffed with more than 12 professionals, even if they're donating their time, you've got food and other activities. I mean, that's a I mean, that's that's a million-dollar-plus type of project. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, the chat room is saying we're ignoring them. I haven't given them links. We're going to have a fix for missing out on the links coming up in a couple weeks, so keep listening in, and we'll tell you how you can get those links in advance. They're going to have to display you with a a lionfish. (laughs) Maybe we do an Internet, uh, one of those IoT devices. We'll have a button they can press, and it will zap me. When I don't do it, but I, I think I've got a better solution than that. A phone was found in a South Carolina lake returned with family photos on Facebook. Anderson County, South Carolina, when you are out in upstate lakes, they people always wonder what's down below. 
uh, toolboxes, ATM caches, fishing rods. You name it, I found it, J.D. said. Uh, J.D. Robinson, who's a uh, volunteer firefighter, it would be very hard without gear. It would be impossible. The camera, he goes scuba diving at different docks through Anderson County. That way people can see what we see. It's a whole different world. Tuesday, like he usually does, he found several lost and forgotten phones. There's one that stuck out with a memory card still intact. The phones don't really do us any good, but we can't just leave them. We want to get them out of the water, and if I find something, I get back to the give it back to the owners, I will do it. And that's exactly what he did. He pulled the phone out of the water, took out the memory card, and posted uh, one of the photos on Facebook. From there, it was shared and commented on. The owner was found within a day. That's what's freaking amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Also well, scary. <laughs> well, that seven degrees of separation doesn't take long. Uh, the family photos uh, with hundreds of photographs they thought was lost. Uh, losing the picture is a little sad, said Carol Brown. She said that she and her family were out in the lake a few weeks ago. Her husband's phone was in the arm of a chair, a folding-up chair, and it dropped in the water. When they went to get both of them, they pulled the chair out, but the phone was gone. Well, they at least they didn't have any uh, embarrassing pictures on the phone. Oh, they didn't say anything. They they did offer him money. They asked if, if I owed them anything. He said, no, ma'am, I don't want anything. I just want to give it back to you. It does me no good to keep somebody else's stuff, so if I can find the rightful owner, I'll give it back to them. And there's something about giving something back that people can't possibly expect would be yeah. found and or given back. Then we have a uh, lost World War II bomber has been found. It's, it's Isn't this a follow-up also than this one? I, I looked at the photo. The photo looks familiar. It, this was posted on July 4th. So there's a Navy bomber resting on the sandy bottom off Palau's coast. Its fuselage is broken from anti-aircraft fire amid heavy fighting in World War II. I think this is. Because the high-tech sonar is the one I thought was interesting about it. Yeah, in fact, this is. We have covered this one before. Because I'm looking at the picture of it now when it is. So sometimes these things get uh, regurgitated or somebody does follow up on them and gets a little bit more detail. But the, 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 I love the photo, the one. Uh, see, the, the thing before didn't it have the article, but then the photos were of different wreck. Yeah. This is interesting here because uh, it gave the depth of an autonomous, unordered vehicle mm-hmm. and high-frequency side scan in shallow waters, 80 to 90 feet. So they used an autonomous underwater vehicle for scanning. Uh, so the waters were 80, 90 feet. So, so they, they had an ROV, and then it was towing a... Uh, a scanner? Well, on top of us, to, to tone basically a drone with a scanner on it instead of a camera. Oh, so that that's the the part that's interesting. I wonder if it's got some sort of buoy that it's dragging around to keep track of its position. Because that would be the part, is that you've got currents you have to compensate for if you're mm-hmm. doing any sort of grid. Uh, I mean, you could still get scans of the bottom. You just wouldn't necessarily know where the scan was. Correct. Unless you somehow had, you know, maybe little baby drones or markers that you would pop to the surface when you see something of interest. Or or maybe it's tethered, even though it's autonomous, maybe it's tethered and they're getting information back. Still interesting. Yes. And the pictures are interesting. Yeah, very very nice pictures. 
photo is courtesy of Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And they do have some nice gear. But it seems deeper than 80, 90 feet, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Just looking at the color of some of those photographs. Yeah, very dark. And what I'm thinking is I bet you this is two ROVs for these photos. Because I think they're using one. Because in the one of them, you can see there's light in the background that's lighting the target. And then you have something else at a different a distance. Or maybe it's an ROV with another tethered part to it that's got a camera on it. But beautiful photos. And then we kind of a reoccurring theme is just how unusual some creatures that are underwater can be. So on June 7th, there was a Facebook post, and it was showing... And I, you look at it, it, it if, if you've ever, we see them here at used car dealerships where they got the little blower in it and it's blowing and you've got like a, an ape or a dinosaur or a snake and it's waving in the wind to kind oh, of grab your attention. Those, those cigar or cigarette places? Yeah. Yeah. That's what this looks like. Imagine a white tube and they say some of them, they describe them as, as like the head of a thimble and then they kind of have a tail. And what it is, and what we're talking about, is a giant uh, pyrosome. And it's considered to be one of the strangest animals on Earth. Uh, to quote uh, the author of the article, uh, if a Borg and the Clone Wars had a baby, it would be a pyrosome. One long pyrosome is actually a collection of a thousand clones, with each individual capable of copying itself and adding to the colony. And like members of the Borg, they're mentally connected. Pyrosomes members are physically connected, actually sharing tissues. And while the Borg live in a big, scary ship, pyrosomes are the, are the big, scary ship. The whole colony is shaped like a giant thimble with a point at one end and an opening at the other. Uh, they feed on plankton. And here's what can be bizarre is a, is a, is a, they're very rare to see. There's a couple of people who said they'd only see a couple a year, and they're fairly small. They said this year they're all over the place. Many are roughly a meter in length. Some are 8 to 10 meters, which for us in the U.S., that's 26 to 33 feet long. One diver said that it was big enough he could have swam into. I'm just into a link, which is it's a two-page long link. It's a picture of a diver by one. I would be going the other way probably, unless maybe it doesn't well doesn't really have a mouth. No, they they say they they eat plankton. Yeah, so do whales. <laughs> I can swallow your butt. What can I say? Okay, now I got to try and figure out where you sent me that. So how did you send it to me? Down at the bottom. Yeah, I'm not here. Let me. Okay, I'm gonna go back. I gotta get to it again. That's the thing with Skype that they need to fix is that any any old conversations are still there. Oh, wait, maybe it just forget, came. Forget the huge one I sent. Go to the second one. I've only got the huge one. There must be a, an internet uh, delay. Yeah, Microsoft just made this even better. Uh, there you go. Uh, here we go. See the picture? Yeah, this one. Of course, the guys on there who, who are listening to us have no clue, so we've got to somehow give them a link. Yeah, I do. Uh the thing is, the show notes have already gone to Jim, so I have to figure out how to get him that link. Maybe I'll send him an updated version. Now, this shows the size compared to a diver, doesn't it? Yeah, this is uh, also by Deep Sea News. Um, Holy smoke. 
But this was posted on August 1st. Yeah, when you go to this one, look at some of the other pictures they've got, including the uh, close-up of the individual members of the colony. Really freaky-looking, man. They do. That is nice. They kind of look a little bit like a, like a, like a water flea in a way. Yeah, very huge one. There's an interesting video too. Oh, this is cool. Yeah, I on that link when you go to it, click on the video. Okay, we'll, we'll see what this very very good this does. Oh my gosh, they've got one guy over at the other end of it, just holding the guy's tail. Mm-hmm. That's got to be God. How long is that? They have some other well, pictures too. That is huge. That is that is easily thirty three feet long. And wait until you watch it, continue watching it, and then it's going to change to some different types. Now, these are a little scary looking. Okay. They call this uh, sea squirts. Yeah, the, the first one just looked like a big giant tube. A little bit, yeah. if you've ever uh, done any, uh, like put in drainage pipe, you know, it's got that sock on it. Uh, except this, this, that would be a big drainage pipe. Oh, I like this part. It says, comment, do not swim inside a uh, oh. zone. While they are said to be quite soft, they report finding a 2-meter, 6.5-foot-long uh, pyrosome with a dead penguin trapped inside. Swam, it obviously swam in the open end and couldn't turn. Jammed in the apex, uh, and its beak was just poking through the colony matrix. It could not break free, showing you how tough they are. So if you did, have a guy with a machete standing by. Well, the thing about it is you don't have any... If you're a penguin, you're just pushing against the water. So if you're in it, you know, you can peck all you want. It's not, and I would hope that we have arms and you could push against it. But I, I, I'm thinking it's probably not a good idea to, to swim inside of one. No, but you want to take a look at this little sucker. Oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. I know. Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> so a good Did squirrel you, moment. What I just sent you? Ooh. Looks like a freaking dragon. Yeah, this this one's from YouTube. As soon as he gets done with his whatever he's doing. The Did people in the video are pretty funky looking. Did you put this on so people could figure out what we're talking about? Yeah, I've, I've, I've added the chat room so they can follow along. Uh-huh. Uh, but what, what it is is there's a, obviously a deep sea creature that has shown up on the beach the head has got to be three feet wide, long, snake-like. And you want to know why they, people thought there were sea monsters. This is a sea monster. I mean, if you've ever had anything brush up against your legs, if you didn't know that these things are so deep, you're not going to swim into them normally. They say it was unidentified. Of course, that's just what these people who post it yeah, said. Yeah. A lot of times they'll post these, and then somebody else will later say what it is. Interesting. There is nothing you can think of in horror movies, science fiction movies, that we don't have something on Earth that's just as freaky looking. Yeah. Okay. I'll make sure we get these to Jim so they'll be in the show notes. And show notes have been coming out within a couple days, so by the weekend you should be able to see these. And how's this for a student project out in Ontario? Students are working to identify an ancient shipwreck. What do you think the chances are 
based on the bones that we're looking at, of being able to say definitively what that is. Just seeing what we've seen, say we don't find anything more. You, you, you can. I think you could narrow it down to a list of four or five, and that's only for what you know. I mean, there's a lot of times you don't know. Yes, did it get reported? Did people realize it was in Lake Michigan? I mean, how many how many times do we repeatedly find shipwrecks in Lake Michigan, and somebody says, "Hey, wait, that was supposed to be in Huron, or that's supposed to be in Superior, or the vessel was reported sunk, but then somebody raised it, and then it went on for a few more years and then sank again." Yeah, given a new a new name. Yeah, it's interesting talking about tree nails. Obviously, a tree nail is a wooden peg used in shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I did realize they said a thousand ships have gone down in the St. Lawrence River. Well, it would make sense. It would make sense just because of the uh, the volume of shipwrecks. I, I would say that would be that's very believable, if not more. So there, so this is off the coast of Quebec. It was originally found in two thousand three. They believe it to be the St. Anne, a merchant vessel that sank three centuries ago in the St. Lawrence Seaway. It was leaving New France for France, carrying loads of furs when it sank in 1704. Um, other researchers are now analyzing the planks in hopes of uncovering how old it is and what sort of wood the plank is, as to a clue to see where it came from. They said, however, there's a slight hitch. A second expedition shipwreck researchers found sheathing on a plank. The ship sheathing was a technique developed in the 19th century where the ship's always coated in copper to limit corrosion from salt water. That ship sheath- sheathing, like this, is a technology from 1800, so it might not be the St. Anne, according to uh, Gingras. But researchers say they will continue their testing, and if the ship in question isn't the St. Anne, the next step will be determining which ship it is. Okay. And experts are urging a city to get into the shipwreck industry. wasn't necessarily aware there was a shipwreck industry, other than maybe ship breakers. Locals don't realize what they're missing, Galley insisted. They look out over Lake Ontario in the river, and all they see is a top of water. There's so much more underneath. A discussion around wrecked ships is set to take off in Kingston over the next few months as feasibility of Alexander Henry an important facet of soon, soon evicted marine museum is turning into an international dive wreck is investigated. Oh, so it sounds like they must have a museum that they've lost funding, so they're going to sink it, one of those floating museums. The Alexander Henry would hardly, however, be the first wreck in the area. The skeletons of 100 ships currently lay in the floor of Lake Ontario. On Wednesday, a new major wreck was discovered, the Royal Albert, which sunk over 150 years ago. While Kingston was once recognized as a jewel in the dive community, they say that tourism and marketing of the enormity of the wrecks in the area has gone down over the years. At one time, I know in the 80s, there were four or five dive shops, 12 dive charters. Now we're down to maybe two or three charters, and we're the only shop. A lot of downtown tourism, he believes, came from stricter measures on American citizens requiring passports to return to this country. After 9-11, he conceded. With the revisions exercising the city is undergoing, Galley says the time was right to bolster Kingston's marketing for its phenomenal dive sites. Hallis agreed, comparing it to a small town in England he had recently visited for a dive. The locals claim they are raising millions of pounds a month for their bed and breakfasts, pubs, and things like that. The same possibly he could be for Kingston. 
So they're talking about ways of uh, using uh, shipwrecks to improve the economy. And we've also said that here. Yeah. There's there's a lot. Yeah, sink it and divers will come. You sink it, divers will come. You have to do some promotion. But the ancillary dollars that come from it are, are going to be pretty big. Uh, and you today, don't have to do any. The divers are going to do all the publicity for you. Yes. Yeah, they'll, they'll do the self-advertising. You need you need some significant size that's going to stay there, still haul for at least 50 or 60 years, a couple of hundred feet, so you can't do it in one dive. Mm-hmm. People will come back. Well, and I think you you do what, what I would like to see. I would like to see here in uh, – in Michigan is that we would take an area and maybe you make a strip and you start at a nice 30 foot depth and you put in like where we've seen in the Caribbean where you have statues, uh, maybe some courses, and then you slowly in a straight line go deeper and you could have some smaller wrecks, some, you know, I could, you know, smaller boats. And then your big anchor piece is a hundred plus foot, you know, either an ex-military vessel or a uh, cargo vessel, uh, and I and I think you, you need to do it as a, as a you know two or three pieces like that. You know, have a long plan. Sure, yeah, it would work. Yeah, and and it looks like uh, our next article is talking about somebody doing just that sort of thing, the Cockburn Dive Trail. Uh, the city of Cockburn's new maritime dive trail is showcasing the Omeo shipwreck of Port Coogee. I'm sure people are just cringing at these pronunciations. O-M-E-O. Omeo and C-O-O-G-E-E. Coogee. It's set to open this summer, which they're in the southern hemisphere, so that means it's about six months away. About 25 meters from the shore, the purpose-built reef will consist of 35 Reef modules ranging in height from one to five meters tall. It will feature underwater sculptures, educational signage. The purpose-built reef will support a range of marine life while providing greater snorkeling and dive experience. The reef will be arranged with seven clusters of four Apollo modules and interspersed with three ABAT modules, one reef temple and one reef mat. The drive trail will feature two unique sculptures, an Australian sea lion sculpture, which will be partially submerged and viewable from land in a giant six-meter-wide sea star. We'll also have a separate viewing deck for those who'd rather stay in land. This is a project will attract more visitors to the area. Researchers will be monitoring a reef to measure expected increase in fish, invertebrates, microalgae, seagrass species. Cockburn boasts a number of incredible tourist attractions. It's a wonderful sea initiative that will link the city's unique past to its vibrant future. The Omeo dates back to 1858 until now, has rested just 25 meters from the shore without many people knowing about it. So they're taking a wreck that was already there and then making a reef around it. What is a habitat module? What is a reef temple? I th- I was a- assuming as I read this that these were some sort of uh, product. Um, A-B-I-T-A-T. I'm finding a construction company named that. Yeah, I don't know. Is that ha- it looks like habitat without the the H? I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know because I'm looking at the the picture and that looks like the front half of a boat. I'm. They feel like 
products. Yeah, because the way they're capitalized, Apollo module, habitat model, reef temple. Yeah, because if you look at that, you know, pictorial, it looks like the half of the back end of the ship is sunk. Yeah. Under the sand. The front half protrudes out. It looks like you got a bow. You almost have a bow spirit. Doesn't it? Yeah. So the modules, I don't know what that means. I think, I think they're, they're doing artificial reefs. I think it's, uh, like the, the balls, you know, concrete structures. So you have a reef mat, which I think is just some sort of concrete structure so that things will attach to them. So we'll, let's see, I'm going to try another search, just see if I get lucky. Well, I'm doing that now and I'm looking at all the pictures and it doesn't show. <laughs> there are concrete structures on the bottom. I'm looking at one, it looks like a, Four huge sections of concrete blocks arranged in a geometric configuration with people sitting on them posing. I keep finding other articles which are saying the same thing. Uh-huh. So it's really not uh, – they're convinced that they're using a correct term. Maybe it's something that they patented. It's their own special project. Well, like we said, anytime you put stuff on the bottom, people will go take a look at it. Yeah. Well, and I think in Lake Michigan, because our, our, the lake bottom is pretty much sand. So there's not a lot of structures. we got some of the clay banks. But you create protection for the fish, and you're going to have fish there. You're going to have wildlife. People are going to see things. They, they're going to go down to see the wrecks. You're going to have a variety of, of sea life. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the wrecks that we have in this part of the state that are in recreational depth, we're not seeing the large concentrations of, of bigger fish, which I think uh, would get a different type of diver. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. of the best, if you want to see fish, is actually the breakwater in Michigan City. Yeah. I was looking at this maritime trail, frequently asked questions. Mm-hmm. And basically it's like uh, Lake Six, uh, Gull Lake is, where you've yeah. got all the different objects on the bottom connected by a line and compass course. That's what this appears to be, dive and snorkel trail. Yeah. Which, that's okay. I don't think in Lake Michigan we're going to get much of a snorkel trail. Uh, you know, even if, so you got a snorkel, what are you going to be looking down at? You know, we're not, we're not going to get much. Right, you know, the wave action is going to inhibit you from doing that. Yeah. I mean, you could do it. If, if you had something in, in 20 feet of water and it rose up five feet, it might be, you might be able to see it with a snorkel when the, when the visibility is great. Well, it just said new purpose reef, 32 modules, range in height from one meter to five meters. That's like you've always wanted to do is put structures on the bottom. Yeah. To become places for fish to go. I think but so. Had sequences like that of weird configurations of concrete blocks even. People would go from one to the next to see the difference. Yeah. It'd be something to do. And if you did it close enough to the, the pier to where you don't have to travel for, you know, 15, 20 minutes in a boat. It makes it a, a little bit more practical, kind of like what you're, you're doing now in the Thursday, Thursday dive. You're able to get right in the river. You're doing some diving. You can get out you know, when you don't have to travel so far. And then in Florida, they're sinking another ship. The ship is the length of a football field. is scheduled to be sunk July 23rd, just one mile from Pompano Beach Fishing Pier in the greater Fort Lauderdale area, complete with underwater art exhibits. It'll be one of the biggest contributions of Florida's artificial reef system and the most easily accessible major dive site in the nation. The 324-foot Lady Luck tanker ship, formerly known as Newton Creek, 
We the centerpiece will become a shipwreck park surrounded by 16 other existing wrecks already covered with maritime life or marine life. She'll be sunk with her hull resting in the sand at about 120 feet of water with the top of her stack about 50 feet under the surface. That is perfect. Absolutely. A heck of a draw. That would be. And if, if we've done this podcast for a while. There are areas of the country that have obviously seen the value of this. Alabama, Florida, Maryland uh, have all done these projects where they are not hesitating to sink these. Uh, it, to say who's paying for this, uh, it's, a, it's a, just a 10-minute boat ride from the Hillsboro Inlet, which they said is different from other wrecks that are about 40 to 50 miles out. Be able to dive the Lady Luck and 16 other wrecks right there. Well, the Beach Economic Development Council helped spearhead the project. <laughs> so well, that must have been the one I was looking at, and yeah. where that noise came from, I have no clue. <laughs> so, Lady Luck was purchased from the City of New York Shipwreck Park Incorporated, which is a non-for-profit organization initially funded by the city of Pompano Beach and the Island Casino Racing Pompano Park in a public-private endeavor like many New York retirees, Lady Luck's final home will be here in South Florida. I'm just trying to put all that, the city of New York shipwreck park. Yeah, there's there's got to be more to this because we need, we need something in the Great Lakes. And specifically, to be selfish, I want something off of St. Joe. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about the photo ops you're going to be able to get, Isle Casino. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to get the casino involved. You know, if you get tourism, hey, you get the divers. You know, the divers go out and significant others who might not want to die, they'll go to the casino. Oh, yeah. Right off Michigan City. It'd be great. I wonder if you could if you, you could position it. Uh, does New Buffalo make sense? Close to the casino. Yeah. How is that port there? <laughs> New Buffalo's got a lot of sand in that one. Same thing with Michigan City, but uh, not near as bad as New Buffalo. They've had to dredge that out, and that's a city thing. You have to do some research on that. That, But I, I think that's it, it's certainly something that I'd like to see. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at the ship, and I dive it. I mean, the, the um, Cedarville, everybody wants to dive that. We go up there mm-hmm. quite often to, to, to dive that ship. Yeah. And she's rolled over now. To be on something like this one, this would be out. Great photos. Okay. There's a website, shipwreckparkpompano.org, which I'm taking a look at now. 15 days, 14 hours, and 23 minutes to the sinking of the ship. They're saying they got no sound in the chat room. Yeah, I think they, I think you guys, uh, Happen. There's, they're saying they can't hear sound in the chat room, but I know, I know it's going. Yeah, it looks like he's uh, rebooting or something because he just dropped out of the chat room. That was Mark. Okay, but the the shipwreck park Pompano. Let's see, do they show anything? Wow, that is a nice wreck, though, Lady Luck. Yes, that uh, perfect, absolutely perfect. Sold. I'll take two. How do we get one of these? <laughs> I mean, all I've heard, I, I haven't, I haven't talked to anybody who's actually done any effort to get something like this going. 
all I hear is how impossible it is, and you got to pay for cleanup, and you got to take the asbestos off. That's because the state doesn't want it. If the state can make a buck out of it, well, they're gonna get taxes. This is well, one of those things. Money off of they're just, I don't know. Uh, well, there, the, I know the way that the, uh, and you know, here's this is local to Michigan. But what we do is we have the underwater preserves. So you have a collection of preserves. Each underwater preserve is allowed to only have one shipwreck sunk in that preserve. And that shipwreck needs to be of historic value. It needs to be pre-approved. It has to be approved by the, the carriers who don't want people in the water diving. Uh, you've got archaeologists who don't want things that weren't naturally there. Uh, yeah, by you know, it's it's okay that it was a a storm a hundred years ago dropped the ship down, but don't intentionally do it because that's going to mess it up. Uh, I, I think it's one of those things where we need to come up with a project, propose it, start lining up funding, and just get a law passed or an exemption. Because I don't think following the rules, you're ever going to get one in because it's going to be so much red tape. We'll all be long gone before it ever gets going. But this is a beautiful shipwreck to dive on. Uh, Just looking at this, the structure and all the objects to dive through. You see that other picture I sent you? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, this is a little different one. Different perspective on it. But well worth something to dive on. Yeah, and we'll add this to the show notes as well. And let's say maybe diving out in large bodies of water isn't your thing, but you still want to do something a little bit technical. How about diving in what is planned to be the world's largest indoor pool? Also saying it's going to be the world's deepest. This one is in the UK. I think we've covered this one before. Something like it. Yeah, the, currently the, the world's deepest pool, which I know we've covered, is Y40 in Italy, which opened in 2014. That one is 40 meters deep, or about 131 Feet deep, a little over a million gallons of water. A pool in England is, is trying to do it just a little bit better. Uh, the, they're going to be at 50 meters deep, which is 164 feet. The Blue Abyss Pool will be able to uh, abyss. I'm, I'm just slurring my words. Maybe I had too much. The Blue Abyss Pool will be able to run a crane and put calves and wrecks in the pool. They'll be able to change the lighting to be dark during the day and bright lit at night as needed, will be able to use trained commercial divers and much more. Now, I, I like the pitch that they're coming with, but you're trying to tell me that other pools can't turn the lights off or turn them on? Uh, the pool is a uh, dream child of John Vickers, imagining director of Blue Abyss. His plans for the pool include a partnership with the European Space Agency to train astronauts and be a destination to host free diving competitions as well as a vehicle to promote scuba and commercial diving. The Blue Disc Pool will also be used for remote-operated vehicles, research, and development. But if the building a 50-meter pool is enough, there are also plans for a $6.5 million on-site, 120-bed hotel to accommodate researchers, along with state-of-the-art lecture theater, six classrooms, mission-control-style video room for pool supervision, and training feedback to process. The company expects the site will create 150 jobs. Opening date has yet to be announced. I like the idea. Um, Temperature would be too damn warm, though, 90 degrees? Well, everybody wants to do it at 90 degrees. 
so that you don't need a wetsuit. So you've got a bunch of recreational people just in their, you know, BC doing a deep dive. I think you have to make it some sort of entertainment thing. Uh, now maybe going with the space, the, you know, with a lot of these projects, we got the same thing here in Bering Springs. We've got, uh, the youth fairgrounds is trying to do an equestrian center. It's supposed to be the ground is supposed to be broken like seven years ago. And they're always like a hundred thousand dollars away from doing it. And what they end up doing when you're at this planning stage is it's, you're trying to make it narrow enough to be believable but you're trying to make it broad enough to see who's willing to put the money in. Because there's going to be elements of this pool that if the European Space Agency doesn't go in and contribute money, they're not going to put that feature in. Because the only reason they're putting it in this material is they think that they're going to be able to get some money from the Space Agency to help them make the whole thing a reality. It would seem like it would be very hard to try to have so many diverse groups in the pool area at the same time Oh, you know, certainly. To do it in such a fashion that it's going to be economical to do. I mean, they're going to train commercial divers in one section while you're doing a, an Apollo spacewalk in the other side. Oh, no. While you're doing a no. deep free dive here as you're teaching scuba. It's, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I, I certainly know what you're saying because that's some of the – as I've done – tried to do business plans for similar type of projects, that's a challenge. When, you, when you're doing the deepest pool – You've got this vertical column, and depending on the activity. So if I'm at the surface and I drop a big bolt, everybody who's between the surface and the bottom is going to be in a direct path. And it's expensive to make that cylinder. So you want to make it big enough to where you're simulating something or allowing somebody some natural experience. But the reality is you have to limit the diameter of it. And many of them will stair-step their way down. And the last 100 feet or so is basically a tube that you're going down in uh, and, and you're limited. I mean, even tech divers, if you have tech divers going down, it, it's, it, you're going to be tripping over each other. Uh, so well, you've just got the, those missile silos and haven't died. Uh, well, exactly. There's, that's, that's a thing. And in the U S the reason why this didn't work is that the military, NASA and uh, you know, in Virginia and in Maryland, You've already got facilities, well, maybe not making world records, and I think in some cases they are, uh, they're already funded, and, and citizens are not going to ever get in there, at least not in any uh, volume. Uh, but I, heck, put it over here. I think that's, another, that's a good idea. I wouldn't mind one. I just think that the viability of them is a challenge. You have to put an entertainment angle to it. Uh, you know, maybe the movie industry in the U.S. might be, a potential for this. But the thing is the deep part is what really throws a lot of these projects off is because not everybody needs that deep, you know, for training, it's nice to have a controlled environment. Uh, would there be, if, if you had one of these, say we had one, would commercial uh, diving operations use this for training their, their people? Do you really want to spend the expense of it? Say it was a, say it was $50 a dive to try to have the pool available to train somebody. In the commercial diving world, wouldn't they just rather go out right in the water where it's already that deep anyway? And we did. You normally either buy an estuary or buy a current. You have your boat. You do a lot of your work in tanks, and then you, after you got your training, you move offshore yeah. to either docks and stuff around where you're working or, or diving. Yeah, in, in Stevensville, I think there's a commercial operation who's got a, a tank that's above ground 
where they do some right. initial it's training. A it's a short tower, yeah. Yeah. And they've done some underwater welding with the uh, student from Lakeshore High School there. Yeah, yeah, because they've got uh, the 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 port viewing, so the guy from outside can watch and observe and see what they're they're having. I mean, I hope for projects like this, just sometimes you know, bang for the buck. I'd much rather see a shipwreck sunk in Lake Michigan than this. But maybe it has to be all of it. Maybe you do it as a destination. We shall see. So good luck to them. Hopefully it works out. And we're going to skip over this next one. Uh, this the is more. Uh, what what it is is it's a, a shipwreck you can dive. It's in Florida. Uh, it's considered to be one of the early U.S. battleships built in the late 1800s, the USS Massachusetts. It is considered to be the worst battleship ever built. Uh, the story behind the battleship is that it was designed by committee. Originally, Congress was asking for uh, a battleship that was going to be uh, a series of battleships. Uh, in the day when we didn't have military spending quite at the scale that we do now, uh, the extent of the project that they wanted was too huge. So instead of having, uh, was it a neighborhood of 40 battleships built, decided to go with uh, three initial and then nine total. And what happened is they had officers and not the practical people <laughs> designing it, and they put way too many guns on it. Together, all the guns that were on the battleship are going to weigh uh, 544,000 pounds after being built and doing some test firing, uh, they discovered that firing broadside just about rolled the ship over. Uh, it had low dock uh, decks, kind of similar to what we see in the U.S. in, in the Civil War, like the, the monitor-class vessels. Uh, so it was very... Well, they only built three of them, and they decided, yeah, it was no good. Uh, they were retooled, uh, did some things with uh, counterbalancing, uh, they were used for training. Uh, they got used in World War I. Uh, but eventually, two of them were scrapped and one was sunk, and that's in Florida, which is this one. So the article talks about a diver who's diving on it, but he does a nice job in the history. So if you're, in a, if you're a history person, this is definitely uh, some, uh, worth the read. But to look at the pictures of it, and it's so infested with coral, as it was designed to be a reef, uh-huh. that really does not resemble a shipwreck anymore. No, and and they said the thing about it is it's so encrusted now that it's, and I they say that it's stabilizing, like because we've seen the pictures of the uh, the Titanic where you've got the rust sickles and it's just dissolving. They're saying that this shipwreck now is stable. It's so encrusted that it could last for hundreds of years. I like the part where it says, the ship is an underwater archaeological preserve managed by the state. Well, the There's state. Nothing to manage. It, it's a piece of coral now. Right. Well, the uh, the federal government wanted to lift the thing up and scrap it. They they wanted for the material, and the Florida Supreme Court somehow claimed jurisdiction over it and granted the deed to the state of Florida. So obviously, the politics are too much. That the U.S. didn't this, the U.S. military didn't decide that they wanted to to go through the hassle of fighting it. So I think they've just defaulted and let it go. I, I don't think I'd dive it myself with a lot, a lot of experience because they're saying the current velocities are five to six miles an hour, most common. Can't swim against it. No, that's a drift dive. dive. you got to visit with high tide and make sure you get your butt back in <laughs> before uh, the slack water you know, yeah. starts and rushing back in. This is one of those where it's probably worthy to have a good charter. Yeah. 
guy who knows what what he's doing, when to do it. I just don't think it's that interesting of a. I mean, it, it there's plenty of history to it. So if you're diving it for history, uh, and it's certainly pretty, but with everything else you've got to dive in Florida, I don't think it would be in the top ten. Now, one of the other reasons they said that Massachusetts became obsolete because it was coal-fired, not oil-fired. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, well, they, they held a million pounds of coal. They said, imagine putting four uh, steam locomotives in the bottom of a vessel, and that's what they were doing. Yeah, because you got a lot of labor for coal. No matter how you do it, you have to have, you know, you, you can have automatic feeders and conveyors and stuff, but you still have humans managing that where with diesel everything's uh plumbed so you just a few people with manning valves can achieve the same thing yeah well we still in michigan i don't know she's still going we have a ferry that was coal fired uh she's gone now as i reckon oh wait a minute you're talking about the one that they gave uh uh an abeyance to well she got an extension but i i think that ended last year uh, that was the one that was going from Ludington, I believe. Was it the Badger? Yeah, something. I don't know the name, but uh sounds yeah. reasonable. Yeah, and, and what it was is with all the uh, cutting down on carbon emissions, and, and it, it did do a little bit of polluting, but what really got it is that the process was it was coal-fired, and they would empty the coal grates in the middle of the lake. So as you're going across, you flush the coal grates out and... Uh, and then you're not doing it at port, which is probably how, what they did in the original days. And you're call, and you're right; it is the badger. The badger, yeah. Um, see, that would be a good one. Yeah, we should find out what's that would be one to go and sink. Okay, and the badger is sailing this season with a 1.2 million high tech combustion control system that reduces the amount of coal it needs for the cost. Uh, so they so they must have gotten an extension on it. Yeah, and catch the accompanying toxic uh, emissions. And more important, the tons of coal ash that it used to dump into Lake Michigan. Yeah, and, that, and that's the coal ash. And the thing with coal ash that people don't realize is, is whether you like coal or not, coal isn't as bad as the other things that come with the coal, depending on where it's mined. Uh, you know, both my my son and my father uh, work at a historical steam museum, and if you're going to run steam engines, you're going to use coal for the coal burning ones. And they they've gone to where they can see the quality of coal that comes in, and they'll they'll grumble just like the people did in the olden days, I'm sure. Uh, and sometimes you get coal just loaded with sand or grit or other things that just a byproduct of where it was mined and what was there. And you've got other things, uh, mercury and other toxins that are separate from the coal, but because you're burning the coal and some of these other things aren't combustible or they they can be vaporized. They're going to be in the air. So that's some of what you run into. But the SS Badger is now a National Historic Landmark, which means that when they don't, they no longer want to run that, that should almost be an automatic approval. That, now, that would look good off of St. Joe in the bottom. Sure. Well, you'd be fighting with a few preserves for that one, wouldn't we? Yeah. Let's see. Let's take a look at the history. So it was launched in 1952. So they somebody built a coal vessel in the 50s. That kind of seems odd, doesn't it? I don't know the history of oil versus coal. Yeah, and then there at the end of the, the article, they have uh, not the article, but their history page. They talk about the. But we've really done a squirrel moment. Uh, the the badger. Um, 
National Society of Mechanical Engineers designated it an engineering landmark. That was in 96 and 97, Michigan Historical Society or Commission, uh, 97, Wisconsin Historic. Oh, gosh, now you got to fight with two states. Uh, 97, Michigan, Lake Michigan Car Ferry designated it historic. But it seemed like there's somebody was doing something in 97. 2002 is named Ship of the Year by Steamship Historical Society of America. 2009, the Badgers placed the National Historic National Register of Historic Places. In 2016, the U.S. Department of Interior designated the SS Badger a National Historic Landmark. Huh. I bet that's going to be allowed to run until they don't want to run it anymore. More than likely. Because at this point, it's a museum piece, and you're going to say, well, who cares what it's polluting? It's the museum. Now, how about this next one? Wouldn't this be fun to find? A container of uh, gold coins? Absolutely. What gold coins? Yeah, what gold coins? We didn't see any gold coins. They said the coins had been stored on board in two pots. Over the centuries, pots disintegrated with the coins fusing together in the shape of the containers which they had been stored. A special interest is the many broken pieces of statuary also discovered in the shipwreck. Since those broken were broken prior to, prior to the sinking of the ship, it appears that the objects were destined to be scrapped, their metal being recycled. It's possible and unlikely the coins were meant to be scrapped as well. And where is this shipwreck? I think it's off the coast of Israel. Yep, contacted Israeli antiquities. They said there are iron anchors that appear to have been tossed in the sea as the ship's crew tried to avoid having the ship strike the sea wall and rocks of the harbor of uh, Caesarea, likely during a storm. There are estimated to be thousands of coins on the shipwreck site. They were covered in two lumps weighing about 44 pounds. The visible coins on the outside of the lumps depict Constantine I the Great, Licinius the of their Oversus. Constantine was emperor of the Western Roman Empire from 312 to 324 Common Era, and the entire empire from 324 to 337. Licinius was emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire until he was defeated by Constantine in 324 in the Battle of uh, Chrysopolis. Apologies to the Greeks who I'm slaughtering the name there. Uh, and then I go into some other history. But uh, I love the coins. This one was out of the numismaster.com, which is a coin collecting site. There is a really interesting one with some really nice pictures I'm going to send you from the Washington Post on the same topic. Okay. One second. You should get it. If you look at it, part of the aspect is we have artifacts which are ceramic, the face mask. And that's what's really impressive. So you're saying a face mask? Go, go to that and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's not just coins. It's a two-man spite, a castaway uh, sculpture sitting among the rocks and silt on the seabed. This is no average oceanic. Um, oceanic. Oh, okay, so, so these are the objects they were talking about that they thought were going to be melted down because they... They were able to identify that they had been broken before the shipwreck sank. So they thought it was almost like a scrap or salvage. So if you were remodeling a place and you tore this out, you have to take it to some place that's capable of smelting it down to be remade into something else. 
Well, those are cool. I agree with you there. Um, the history of the coins itself, numistically, would be quite valuable, one would think. I wonder if they're able to put that in a solution and, and get them to eventually come apart. Or are they even going to try? They're probably not going to try. Uh, but if you continue down, something like the hand, that's quite interesting. One of them is interesting because it looks like he's giving somebody the finger. That's what I was thinking. He's like, hey, he's a, you cut me off in traffic. Because <laughs> uh, from the angle, you can't tell if the fingers are rounded or missing or bent down. The accident was ultimately the artifact's salvation because these statues were wrecked together with sh- They sank in the water and thus were saved from the recycling process. It, it's interesting because the other articles talk about many of the bronze statues that everything that's you know, been wrecked during dur- either warfare or earthquakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they use, you know, colossal roads and all of that. They used to just take the, the, the pieces that were left and melt them and do something else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, once it falls so over, unless you're going to... It's trash at the time, but now it's considered, it's treasure. It's, it's precious. Yeah. yeah, it's precious trash. Well, and some of these could have been vandalism. Yeah, I, I don't like that guy. I didn't vote for him, or he, he wasn't in my group. And then, how about this? A 2,000-year-old lost city has been found. At least they think so. And I'm, and I'm always a little skeptical, a little... little preview before we get right into the article is I think when you are have an idea of what you want and expect to find I think it's easy to interpret objects to be that you're kind of like the same thing with shipwrecks you know if you're if you're convinced that a certain shipwreck is going to be there that anything that is there that you can't just dis- that somebody can't disprove is not what you want it to be then that's what you're calling it so the researchers thought he has found the 2,000-year-old city, lost city of Rapta, R-H-A-P-T-A. The ancient ruins off the coast of Tanzania could be the Roman town market. Uh, Rapta is believed to have been Africa's first metro- metropolis and a trading hub for tortoiseshell and metal weapons. But little is known about the story since its disappearance more than 1,600 years ago. Its location has not been firmly identified, although there are never plausible candidate sites off the coast of Tanzania. Alan Sutton, a scuba diver, might have come across ancient city uh, during a series of dives. The formation was quite far in the distance. I took a photograph and blew it up, Mr. Sutton wrote in a blog post about the discovery. After several unsuccessful attempts to find the formulations, uh, formations, due to low water visibility, we managed to find them on a spring low tide. What we found is far larger than expected, a series of what appears to be wide formations, large ring and area. Although the entire perimeter created by the foundations, many thousands of square and oblong blocks lie to either side. Some have fallen off the foundations, others are still leaning against it. I mean, I guess it's possible. There's probably many ports from the time. It's always amazing with... Because to me, anything in the last 2,000 years seems like that's not, I mean, it's, it's not like 3,000 years ago. You know, we're not talking about Atlantis. We're talking about something that's in fairly recent times. I always like those weird things like researchers discover a 2 billion year old nuclear reactor in Africa. Oh, you're, you're looking at the side stuff? 
Well, no, but it's like we're talking about this unusual stuff and how do you do something with it. And uh-huh. it's like, well, okay, two billion year old nuclear reactor. Well, there have been uh, nuclear reactors naturally occurring. I think there was one discovered in France. Didn't know that. I knew that. I've heard about the ones in Africa before. Uh, and what it was is it was just a a natural formation of, and and maybe it wasn't France, maybe it was someplace else, but it was a natural formation of radioactive material, and it was uh, through you know natural geological changes the radioactive material got close enough to it was able to make a chain reaction mm-hmm. and actually had what we would today call a meltdown, and they're able to see the signs of it when they've usually they're mining something else. And then they get into these areas. Yeah. But uh, is somebody saying they're aliens? <laughs> aliens. Well, they're definitely yeah. Well, they're saying this is a, a a Roman port town. So they show a map: Tanzania, south of Kenya. But that's a, that was a haul for Romans to be that far away. Looking at the map, I could see how you kind of lose track of it. They're off the coast of Madagascar. Let's see. I think is that those are new objects, aren't you? Cameras and stuff. Yeah, that does it for Scuba the News. Now we're to potentially cool Scuba Gear. Gizmag.com has an article on action cameras, and I'm sure this is just uh, a press release talking about. A camera. Did we talk about this one before? I know I've had it in my notes before, but I don't know if we actually got a chance to talk about it. The Octaspot. Uh, it's a camera that's designed to, or one of the ways you can use it is uh, attached to a mask. So if you imagine kind of a small tactical LED flashlight, something could easily fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, this is a GoPro-ish style of camera. Has a resolution of 4K or 30 frames per second. Can shoot 12 megapixel stills. Uh, it has a foam insulated battery that uh, one charge is good for two hours of recording. The body is made out of military grade aluminum and without a special underwater housing it is uh, rated to 200 meters or 656 feet deep. Quick question for you. Yes. What the hell is military grade aluminum? Uh, the reason I say that is You've seen a plethora mm-hmm. advertisements for tactical flashlights. What the hell is a tactical flashlight? So I looked that up. Absolutely, absolutely nothing. Tactical means nothing about the flashlight. Aircraft grade aluminum can well, be nothing important. From, from a having a, 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 a history in law enforcement, I know what the tactical flashlight is. Is when, and this has been 15 years ago now, when I was going through tactical training. So what you, you do is, Every officer gets trained at least initially the same way that the tactical teams do or what we used to call the SWAT teams. Uh, and one of the things that you learn is is at night, if you have a flashlight, that gives you away and the bad guys can shoot you. So you learn techniques. And what made it a flashlight tactical, and part of it was it just that the, the tactical teams would use, is one thing you wanted at light. Uh, usually at a big flashlight was like a 4D cell battery because you could almost use that as a baton as long as the prosecuting attorney didn't find out. And then you would have a tactical flashlight, which would fit in the palm of your hand. And what really made it a tactical wasn't so much the size. You wanted it small because who wanted to hold this big heavy thing out the arm's length when you're doing a building search? But it was the push button on the back. 
because what you wanted to be able to do was you just push the button for a second to light up your area and then you go off with it. And then also when you lit it up, you had that flashlight as far away from your body as possible. So if the bad guy shoots at it, and hopefully he's in somewhat good shot, he's going to shoot the at most your hand or where the flashlight is and not your body. So that's what made a tactical flashlight. It's the use of it by people, not the, the flashlight's not tactical at all. Yeah, the flashlight didn't do anything for you. It was a, no, right. it's it was like, a flashlight. Yeah, uh, firemen use it, military use it. Yeah, because if you look up who does the military buy their lights from, it's from whomever happens to have one. Well, you meet the spec. want at that time. Yeah, and when you say military grade, uh, and I think military grade is just more of a cool term, I know that for bolts, there are different ratings for bolt strengths. And at one point, it went to aircraft as being the top. And we've gone way beyond that. But the way you can look, if you ever see a, a hex bolt head, is there would be like lines on it. And it kind of meant the more lines was the higher the strength was for that bolt. And I'm sure military grade was just that the military would spec the aluminum and say it needed to be a certain consistency, but which military grade is it? Is it the crap military grade, or is it the good military grade? Right, or aircraft aluminum. What the hell does that mean? I can cut <laughs> aluminum with my shears. So it, <laughs> well, exactly. It's interesting looking at the terminology they use to try to sell your product. Yep. However, it has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of anything. Yeah, and, and that's the thing you have to watch out for when you see these articles, because I've... I, I've seen this article for several weeks, and sometimes I haven't covered it because, really, it's being inserted. This is called native advertising or embedded advertising. Uh, and the smarter ones will do it almost like a comparison because media people are lazy. Uh, and, and I'm not to the, the pick on them, even though I do like to pick on them, uh, because they're not getting paid a lot, and they got a lot of things to do. So if somebody can do half the work for them, and it's not breaking any rules as far as they're concerned, they're going to take advantage of it. So that's how a lot of your press releases become articles. Uh, so the, the, a lot of times they'll, they'll do them. And then there's also uh, many websites, and I don't know if Gizmag is one of them, will actually allow advertisers to write their own articles and insert them themselves into the websites. Uh, but... Either case, sometimes I see something that's interesting, and that's the case with this Octospot. I thought it was an interesting-looking uh, camera. I like the size of it. Uh, they're supposedly the software is designed to eliminate the fisheye, which is one of the things I don't like about these small action cameras. Uh, it has accompanying apps for iOS or Android that allow you to adjust the settings on it. Uh, but it also looks like it could be used as a, as a backup dive logger. So it has, uh, it will, there's an ability to have a dive log data display right on the video that you're taking. It's 600 bucks. I think I'll still keep my GoPro. Yeah, I, I think that's just what it's at right now. Um, it's a Kickstarter campaign that's, that's on, they're saying that's going, it's a pledge is 349 will get you one. They said the retail price is going to be 600 when it goes, but let's see, can we, I'm going to hit the Kickstarter project and see where it's at. So the amount of the goal for it was they wanted $80,000. They currently have 349 backers and they're at 139,000 with 27 days to go. So I would say this is a success, successful campaign for them. I like your next one. 
the Big B swim jets water propulsion system. This one was is listed in the, the uh, website designboom.com. And I just thought this is, this one kind of caught my eye. Uh, the photo at the top of the article shows, um, gosh, how do, you, how do you describe that? It's almost like the top part looks like it could have been a light. I don't know if it is or not. Um, gosh, it looked, if you imagine a U, uh, so if you had, if you held your hand out in front of you, and you grab the U at the, the bottom, you'd have part that would go over your hand and part would go under. The part that goes under they're showing in this picture would be like a, I'm assuming it's a motor and a housing, and then you got a propeller blade below it. And then I'm picturing the top part is probably the battery. Uh, if you scroll down through the article, they show different configurations for it, and one of it looks like a torpedo. Uh, and then there's mounting brackets to it. So they're, they're mounting these things on kayaks, uh, surfboards, paddle boards, and then that handheld unit looks like you could use it for scuba diving. It's no different than a trolling motor. They well, right. just package it to a different configuration to sell Certainly. you the same thing in a different package. Yeah, well, anybody could have done this. It's just these people did. Well, could they keep saying water jet propulsion? No, it's a propeller. Oh, right. you, you can see the propeller right there. I mean, they've got a little bit of a housing on it. It's, it's nothing unique or special. Uh, they said it weighs, um, it's a portable handheld size weighing two pounds or one kilogram can generate enough thrust to, do, to drive a full-size kayak or stand-up paddleboard occupants up to 11 kilometers an hour at a range of 15 to 25 kilometers in a single battery charge. And I'm looking at the configuration for the kayaks doing that. And it's no different than if I put a trolling motor on. It looks like a trolling motor, actually. It does when they hook it up to the kayaks so they yeah. show the pictures. Yeah, certainly. Do Great people packaging. put trolling motors on kayaks? Do you see that often? Uh, no, I do not. So it's, it's an interesting idea. I what, I what I really liked was the first picture at the top, how it showed that. Because I, I could like, see that because that, that seems like to be small enough I could clip on to my bc and it could be used if i want to like say we're in the river and the current's just a how about trying to get across from one side to the other yeah of, of all the pictures i like i know that you're you're at the top picture they're looking at that mm-hmm. i personally like the third part to the third picture down period that says it all <laughs> and i'll leave it at that yeah um and, and for those who haven't seen it he's referring to the spokes model who's demonstrating the paddleboard. And I'm sure her physical appearance had nothing to do with her getting this position. Absolutely not. And you can see the battery box on the back of the board and the trolling motor. I mean, the other. Yeah. this That that right there looks like a very early prototype. I mean, that, that, that battery box is just a deep cycle marine battery in a plastic tub. Yes, it is. But and I hope you. I hope that's not what they're using to say that you get, uh, you know, a range on a single battery charge. Well, if you're looking at that kayak, got a battery sitting right behind that guy. Huh? Yeah, because that that's that's there's nothing impressive about that. Yeah, they, they do do say they have lithium ions, but I don't think that up there is a lithium ion. I think they're just using a deep cycle lead acid battery. Well, that does it for scuba news and potentially cool scuba gear Boy, we're going we're going pretty late tonight so let's go ahead and jump into or uh, discuss 
diving this last week. Uh, so this this week's dive was in the river. Well, Thursday Thursday was in the river this week, but we've had um, Gull Lake running with the steamboat. We've had Ann Arbor Five several dives on that one. Mm-hmm. We've had Baltimore Barge and Crane that's been dove. Uh, now, did Kevin get any video of the barge and crane? I, I asked that tonight, and people say they have had cameras, but I've not seen any video yet. I know the visibility on the Ironsides two weeks ago was 80, 90 feet. Excellent. And they're, they got the uh, Ironsides coming up for this uh, Sunday. Yep, they're talking about doing the Ironsides again. And on Ann Arbor, I understand that they weren't able to snag the wreck to get an anchor on it, so they Bob had to swing swim to the wreck, and then float a line so that the recreational divers could get on it. Right. It was a little more involved than that, but bottom line is everybody got down on it. Uh, I think most everybody got at least 300-foot-plus dives. Uh, Bob was down there about 165 feet. Got a lot of time down, so everybody got their deep dives in yesterday the other day. Excellent. Good. Good. Um, any idea what the water temperature was on the Ann Arbor 5? Dry suit. Dry suit. So what we would expect at depth in Lake Michigan. Yes. So probably in the mid-40s, maybe 50 at the best. I don't think it was in the 50s that deep. Yeah. If it was, you're, you're probably getting pretty close to lake flipping time then. Yeah. Uh, and then the river, I, you were saying before the show that people are getting too warm. Oh, man, I got in so I could put my gear on because I was already sweating. <laughs> I wear my shorty under it again. So, so, so you bring some cool water to prime as no, you're getting ready? No, was opening their chute letting it in, you know, and doing the bellows action. Yeah, I, I, I certainly understand that. Uh, any any good finds? Uh, everybody didn't try to put their stuff out, but I looked at a few of my items. They got a couple of anchors. Got me a lightning stopper bottle embossed, which is nice, and a couple other ones that are nice and embossed. A very old beer bottle, which I goes up with my Pabst Blue Ribbon one, mm-hmm. that really squat looking little thing. So I, I did some nice ones. I'm very pleased with my finds tonight. Excellent. Well, great. I'm I'm glad to see that everybody's getting out. Except even though it wasn't me, well, I we did. Had, we had Mary Beth was out. She hit the water first. She got there a half hour early. She had a bubble watcher who helped her. Uh, Jake was out. Um, Ted, John, uh, Schultz, mm-hmm. myself. Oh, excellent. Uh, Richard showed up later. So I, there was only six six of us, I think, went out to eat afterwards. Well, great. So good, good turnout. Yes. It's getting that time. I mean, or it's beyond that time now. Uh, I got ca- I got some catching up to do. So you're doing the Ironsides is is Saturday, isn't it, or Sunday? Well, they're going to do the Ironsides on Sunday, I believe. Sunday. Yeah. And That's we hope cool. they'll mow the lawn again tomorrow, so we'll see how oh, that. Excellent. How, how did last week's mow the lawn go? Well, we didn't. We got blown off here. Oh, so that's we right. Go lake and then uh, the steamship. Okay. Now was that the steamship that we've dove before? The one that you had mentioned about. Ah, okay. It's, so, it's a really interesting place because, I mean, at 60 foot where that is, mm-hmm. uh, we were looking for the paint and trying to get under the hull to get a name. 
immediately behind it starts going back up to like 40 feet. Yes. In a junkyard area with boats all over the freaking place. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a, a bizarre spot. You wouldn't think that it would be that deep there. And you have a lot of traffic. Oh, yeah. I I don't do it this time of year. In fact, it, I'm surprised you guys have been able to do it this time of year. Well, we anchored the boat. Uh, we put a float out, and we carried the big float mm-hmm. with all the flags on it. So it's not one of these you can't tell us. But when we came out, we must had 100 feet plus of fishing line because they went right over us. Oh, <laughs> And five foot swells in that small area. Five foot swells. And you said swells, is that from the, the wake of the boats? But yes, because there was no limitation on wake speeds. Oh. And it, I mean, when I say five feet, I'm talking true five foot swells. Yeah, because this is in the southern part of Gull Lake. Yeah. And it really is more of like an inlet, or it seems like, it feels like a river, what you're diving it's in. It's too freaking narrow to have 40 mile an hour speed limit there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I don't know what the politics are that, because you know, it seems like every place you go, it's no wake, no wake, no wake, and there it isn't. Correct. Uh, but we, I typically have, div, I've dove that, tw- I think twice, at least once, but maybe twice. And that's uh, usually in November, usually before our turkey dive, the beginning of November. Uh, we've done it, I think I've done it twice, once at the beginning of November, once at the beginning of December. But good, glad to glad to see you find it. See that 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 way you you know I'm not as crazy as I sound. Mostly, kind of. Well, once again, I want to thank everybody for listening. We certainly appreciate it. We're going to have some upcoming news in the next two weeks, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, always follow us on Twitter at Scoob Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. Our website www.scoobobsessed. And the Mud Club is mudclub.scubobsess.com, and you can follow some of the things that the Mud Club is doing. I do need to get back and do some editing on that site. Um, you got anything you want to plug, Mac? No, not, not this week. Yeah. Other than if you guys are not out there diving, I don't know what to say. And other than that, I haven't heard any feedback from anything lately. Do you? Give us feedback on anything. Yeah, yeah. Drop us a line. The show at scoobobsess.com. We are going to be at an hour and a half on this one. In fact, I may break this into two episodes, uh, depending on the feed. So, you know, if you heard an odd section in the middle, you want to go to our 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 main feed and get it because uh, some of our partners will only share an hour and a half of the program, even though we thank them for putting us on, such as WRVO Radio. Uh, one of the advantages of doing a podcast is that you can take as long as you want, so we may do that in some cases. And let us know. Uh, give us some feedback on how you like it. We're going to be adding some new content, some new offerings here. We've been talking about it for well over a year, and we are closer than ever of getting that going, and we'll show you how you can help us out with that. But... We have gotten to that time of the show. Are you ready, Mac? Absolutely. Kevin the diver walked into the doctor's office, and the receptionist asked him what he had. Kevin said shingles. So she wrote down his name, address, medical insurance number, and told him to have a seat. Fifteen minutes later, the nurse's aide came out and asked Kevin what he had, and Kevin said shingles. So she wrote down his height, weight, complete medical history, and told Kevin to wait in the examining room. Half an hour later, the nurse came in and asked Kevin what he had, and Kevin says, shingles? So the nurse gave him a, gave Kevin a blood test, a blood pressure test, an electrocardiogram, told Kevin to take off all his clothes and wait for the doctor. 
An hour later, the doctor came in and asked Kevin and found Kevin sitting patiently in a nude and asked Kevin what he had. And Kevin said, shingles. And the doctor asked, where? Kevin said, outside in the truck. Where do you want me to unload him? Okay. I'm not sure if that's bad or good. Yeah. Well, there's, there's many times there's always a little bit more to the story. Yep. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. been completed.